This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Just grace, grace, speak true, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representer, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, how was your uh, Father's Day, brother? Uh, it was outstanding. I really enjoyed it. We had uh, we do something called Dad Church uh, here at the church where we uh do service in the midst of like a cookout. Uh, so that was pretty fun. And then hung out with, uh, with Z and the kids. So it was dope. Did you get a tie? I got, I did not get a tie. I actually got a pretty uh, thoughtful gift from, uh, from my kids. They got me just like random uh, bits of my favorite things, you know, snacks and uh-huh. uh, a little something to read. So it was, it was a thoughtful gift. That's what's up, man. Well, my wife uh, and, and sons did a good job, too. They actually brought Chicago. You know, we spent I'm, I'm in Atlanta from Denver in Atlanta, but we spent a lot of time in Chicago. Love Chicago food. So my wife actually got Portillo's and ordered it oh. and uh, had it here in Atlanta. So that was good, man. And, you know, this, uh, you know, obviously we had Juneteenth, too. So we celebrated Juneteenth. That was good. Got out with some family, had an old school cookout. So had to love that. Mm-hmm. But Father's Day especially, man, um, this is always that reminder that being a father is such a gift. I mean, you can get caught up in all the stuff that goes on and the whining and all the stuff you got to deal with the kids. But you, you got to just step back and say this is is truly a gift. I mean, I don't I don't know how you can look your child in the eye for the first time and not believe in an amazing miracle working God. Uh, it's something I, I still have trouble processing the fact that I'm a father and, you know, this weekend, I posted a tweet saying that fathers are irreplaceable, um, and I truly believe that fathers are ir- irreplaceable. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love and support families where the father is missing for whatever reason. We both have those in our family and love them to death. But uh, we should promote a culture and advocate for policy that acknowledges the unique role of fathers because fathers are very important. Yeah. Um, that's another area where I think, you know, and I'd love to hear what you thought on this. I think President Obama did a really good job when it came to fathers. I think he 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 focused in on that. He always talked about the importance of fathers, even when the far left pushed back, and they did push back. If you look, if you look back, they he received some criticism for his strong stance on the importance of fathers. And I don't know that he got enough credit from conservatives on that position. I wonder how many prominent Democrats today would explicitly take that same position. But from my point of view, we cannot socially construct our way out of the need for fathers. And I always appreciated what Obama said uh, in that regard. You know, I I definitely appreciated uh, his approach. And and I think he, you know, 
continues with that. And, and, and like you said, we don't necessarily see that coming uh, from enough folks on on the left. And we don't see enough people, you know, other leaders, uh, conservative leaders really giving credit uh, there. And it's, it's really important. I mean, it's one of those things that even though you're going to get some pushback, man, we, we just have to be for that. Uh, even, you know, as it becomes a little bit more common for uh, families to be constructed without fathers, we can never make that uh, normal, normative for us. Uh, you know, we just have to go with what the word says and, and, and really what our experiences teach us. Yeah, I mean, that that's such a good point. Uh, we know there are exceptions. The exceptions aren't lesser in, in the human dignity or anything like that. But I think we tend today to make the exception the rule or, or make the exception part of the rule. And I, I think we need to do our best to, to keep fathers in the house. And, and your families are always worth fighting for, guys, um, and, and love them and, and make sure they're healthy. But do your best to fight to keep your family together. Chris, I, I know you're you got a lot going on this week, uh, campaigning and being a father and everything and being a pastor and everything else that comes goes along with it. I'm super busy this week. Uh, just did a panel hosted by Georgetown University on the importance of voter rights, voter participation. I'm headed to Notre Dame later this week or in a few days for a religious uh, liberty panel. And then I'll be speaking at an event hosted by Duke University. So uh, we at the AND campaign are trying as much as we can to get the word out, to get this framework out. And we appreciate y'all for telling people about us, for shouting us out and sharing our messaging, because we certainly wouldn't be able to do this without you. And so we are praying for a word and constructive dialogues as we go out into the public square and represent this way of thinking and believing. Well, as usual, we got a lot of stuff coming up for you today. So go ahead and grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Chris, believe it or not, there was a time when television news wasn't 24 seven. People couldn't tune into Fox News, MSNBC or CNN at all times of the day and get expert analysis on the latest tweet from their favorite or most hated elected official or influencer. You couldn't get a play by play on every trial, policy debate and international altercation as they were happening. Sometimes, Chris, you even had to wait for a few hours. Imagine that television broadcasts really started in the early 1940s. But if you didn't live near a tower, you couldn't get access. Then came community antennas, which expanded access to remote areas. And eventually cable would provide Americans with programming uh, choices that were were outside of their local options. The first broadcast of the cable news network, CNN, which was the first cable news network, came in 1980, providing 24 hour news. But CNN actually didn't make a huge splash initially. Early on, uh, it really struggled to gain credibility and to compete with the more established broadcast. It wasn't until world events like the first Gulf War, where CNN had reporters live on the ground at all times, that Americans really started to tune in more to this 24-hour news cycle on cable. MSNBC would launch in July of 1996 and Fox News would follow closely thereafter uh, in October of 1996. And here we are now. 
Many Americans were glued, and you know this as much as I do, Chris, many Americans were just glued to cable news all throughout Trump's presidency. I mean, the numbers for CNN and Fox News especially just were, were out of, you know, were, were huge. Now, cable news viewership has dropped considerably uh, since he left office. Almost two million less people watch cable news on a daily basis. But the impact of cable news and its incentive structure continues to wreak havoc on our public discourse. One would think that more news and more information would be a good thing. Well, yes and no. We should, I, I think, Chris, we should want uh, uh, more information. We should know, want to know what's going on around the world and what's going on near us. But at some point, we, we would reach diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. At some point, it can, it can make you more anxious and really make people more paranoid. And the framing of the content, don't forget this, the framing of the content matters. It seems we get less and less true journalism on cable news and more and more opinions. And what I see is really false narratives. Today, it seems like people go to cable news primarily to have their biases confirmed. The partisan and ideological lean of these cable news stations is shameful. Let's be honest. It's an echo chamber that only provides ideological diversity when it's necessary to provoke an entertaining fight. And then there's a the fear mongering. There's an incentive to keep us fearful. There's an incentive to keep us enraged. And in a country of almost 330 million people, there will always be something to be upset about. There will always be someone in some random town being racist. There will always be some crazy professor saying something completely ridiculous. Cable news and social media make it seem like those things are always next door. It makes it seem like they're ever present and that they're an ever growing threat. And that that threat is always just a moment from our doorsteps. The way cable news covered the COVID crisis, for instance, in my opinion, was irresponsible. We couldn't just get the facts of what was going on. We had to get the chosen narrative, no matter how dishonest or divisive that narrative was. When there was no reason to be politicizing this, it was being politicized every day to keep you tuning in on cable news. It's not cool. When serious issues like this become entertainment and cultural war fodder, we incentivize charlatans. When I hear my family members, Chris, and my friends repeating the talking points that I know they got from cable news uh, or, or hating folks who are on the other side and, and, and labeling them in ways that I know they got from cable news, uh, it is really frustrating. And what I think is, I lo I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What I think is, Chris, is that the bottom line is watching cable news is bad media hygiene. And so I'm going to make the suggestion to our listeners that you just turn it off for a while. And we're going to get some, into some alternatives, but I want to hear what Chris has to say on this matter. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's crazy to be, you know, at this place, but I think we really have come to the place where most of it uh, is generally bad. Uh, you, you just laid it out uh, really, really well. Uh, and and for me, you know, at least to the Christian, like this is a discernment issue, right? Over and over again in the scriptures, 
we are encouraged to cultivate this uh, element of of wisdom and discernment sort of in our uh, character and our personality. Uh, this This discernment is an ability to properly discriminate uh, between right and wrong, to, to discern, uh, you know, through wisdom and insight, what is going on beyond what's originally presented in terms of what we see and what we hear. Uh, and as believers, we should be able to distinguish uh, and separate out for ourselves uh, and diligently search for what is good and what is evil, and even distinguishing between what is good and what is best, right? That is what discernment is all about, and Christians should be discerning. Uh, and I think that in order to tune in constantly to cable news, you sort of have to leave your discernment out of it, right? Like you got to check your discernment at the door. And as believers, we should never, ever, ever do that. We should always be practicing uh, discernment. So, you know, you have this this uh, this idea uh, that that you have spoken of uh, already, Justin, of of media or information hygiene. Um, you know, I talked about this. I think in January, right? Uh, because in January we were on this podcast and we were pleading with people not to go into the politiz- politicization of COVID. Uh, And we pleaded right here on this podcast in January uh, for people to practice this information hygiene, uh, to be engaging with uh, the information, uh, but to be, you know, we we pulled this from uh, this Edelman report. Stay informed is the first point. It's four things that they say. Stay informed, uh, you know, get information on a regular basis, uh, but avoid echo chambers. That's the second one. you know, so you're talking about just getting information from different points of view. Don't always just tune into MSNBC or Fox. Uh, avoid the echo chambers. The third one is to not assume that it's true because it supports your point of view. Uh, right. So you got to understand that these cable news networks, they're totally designed much more than to bring you facts. They're designed to bring you a point of view that just affirms what you already think. So you can't assume that it's true just because you agree with it. And then the, I think this is the most important, sanitize before you share, right? So uh, avoid spreading misinformation by just checking the veracity of information before you post it or email it or text it to somebody. Uh, and the the crazy thing in the Edelman report is that only 26% of Americans practice good information hygiene. Uh, and and that's crazy, uh, you know, and, and for me, the Christian has a special burden for this because, again, it's a discernment issue. Uh, so I, I will say this and, and, and then I'm uh, I don't know. I've said what I have to say, but I, I would add a fifth principle for Christians. And I steal this uh, from none other than Justin Gibney. Grab your Bible and get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Democrat or like a Republican, but like a Christian. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that uh, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's nothing more discerning than the word of God. And before we 
You know, I think if we're practicing good media hygiene, we're bringing our Bible when we read the news, right? Like, and and I think this is really important. I'm trying to. Uh, I have a ten year old daughter. Well, she's not quite ten yet. She's going to be ten uh, in September. But I'm trying to train her right now to do this in real time, right? She's getting interested in news and current events, um, and I think it's really important in this day and age to, in real time, as you're processing the news be thinking about what does the Bible have to say about this? The stuff that this person is saying, the things that these people are doing, would scripture affirm this or would scripture challenge this? And I think it's important to do it in real time before you get all emotionally engaged, before you harden your positions and post something on social media that is hard to back away from in real time. Uh, and and I'm, I'm trying to do it where it's like, hey, have your Bible right there with you while you're doing this. But even those of us who have been engaged with the word of God uh, for a longer period of time, in real time, you should be asking yourself questions about the news that you're processing. How does the word of God speak to this? Um, because at the end of the day, it's a discernment issue. And if you're sitting there watching cable news and you're trying to practice good information hygiene, and you're asking yourself those questions questions about the word of God, I just don't think that you would be able to tolerate much of it. Hmm. No, that, this is good. And, and you know, Chris, we talk about this in the book, Compassion and Conviction, uh, the Anne Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Communication, even in the Bible, is very important and very impactful. Uh, whether you're looking at the fall uh, whether you're looking at, you know, uh, what went on with Moses and in the gospel and on and on and on, communication p- played a role in all of that. In fact, communication plays a major role in the Great Commission. So we know that communication is important. Words are important. What we take in and what we say are very important. And so we need to make sure that we're putting all that stuff through biblical scrutiny. If you're just listening to folks and letting them blow you to one way or the other, like the wind, Mm -hmm. you're not being faithful. If you're just retweeting people and posting information from others without uh, sanitizing it, as Chris said, then you're hurting the public discourse uh, and you're not doing what you need to do uh, in in a very responsible way. And so we want to make sure that at least the folks that listen to this podcast are aware of how they can do better. And I think one of those things, and this isn't to say, let me back up a little bit. This isn't to say everybody on cable news is terrible, but in general, there's some good folks on, there's some good folks with integrity, but in general, it is not helpful. And the, and the, and the way that it is going and the incentive structures that have been set up for cable news are not good for the discourse. And they're not informing people the way that they should be. Uh, and we really got to be careful for that. But we don't ever want to leave you ill-equipped. So if we're going to tell you, hey, stop watching cable news, which we are telling you that, we also want to say, here's some other things you can listen to and get your information from. So we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want to say don't do nothing. But there are other options. And these other options are growing partially because people are getting sick of the cable news, but also because uh, of technology. So one thing I would say Uh, which has nothing really to do with technology, but something we should have been doing before is watch your local news and read your local newspapers. There's a lot of information in there. One of the bad things I think about cable news and even social media is everything has become national. Don't make your public witness just a national witness. Know what's going on locally and, and, and really look through all this stuff. Now, you still have to have the hygiene with that, too, but 
a lot of times you're just going to get better information there with, in, in general, a little less narrative, not always, but uh, uh, you can't get much worse than what we're seeing on cable television. Now I want to give you some real alternative news sources uh, for this type of information. Now, these are people, and this goes without saying for those who listen to us, these are sources that I, of course, don't agree with everything that they say. It's not just a uh, an endorsement of everything they say, but I do think these folks are intellectually honest. Uh, and that goes a long way. And it's something that we don't always get on cable news. So one of my favorite sources of news and information right now, especially when it comes to politics, is Breaking Points. Uh, breaking Points is a new uh, news source slash podcast with Crystal Ball, who is a progressive, and uh, Sagar Unjetty, who is a conservative. Uh, and they just left the hills rising. So I used to watch them on what was called the hills rising, but they created their own independent show called Breaking Points. And I think they really dig deep and give you a point of view that you will not hear on mainstream media. I mean, they dig deep into issues. They tell you what the angle is from you know progressives and 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 conservatives, and they really dig into conversations that need to be had. Now, they, they kind of they avoid culture war stuff to, to some extent, because I think they probably feel like that gets covered enough and try to get to some other issues that are really important. One thing I will say is, although one is progressive and one's uh, conservative, they are fairly populist. Uh, so you are going to hear kind of that uh, spin to it. But even with the populist stuff, I think they acknowledge the other side of the argument uh, and they disagree with one another from time to time, too. So so whatever they're giving you is not just propaganda. They're really giving you the news and telling you what's going on in a way that you don't hear other places. Uh, and you can watch uh, you can listen to them and watch this on YouTube or you can go to iTunes or, you know, all these other places where you can get any podcast or whatever. You can go and listen to breaking points. But that's one of the main places that I go every day to get my political news and, and, and economic news and things of that nature. The, the other one is I still watch The Hills Rising. So they came from The Hill. The Hills Rising uh, show is still on YouTube. And that's something I still listen to. Uh, one of my favorite commentators and people who just gives, I think, an honest um, uh, opinion on certain things is uh, Matthew Iglesias. Uh, he has a substack called Slow Boring, and it is really good. So Matthew Iglesias is somebody else I would point to. The Dispatch does a good job. The Realignment podcast is really good. Uh, anything that Matthew Lewis does on the right is, is is strong. Also, listen to Ross Douthit. Listen to Damon Linker. These are folks, again, who I don't always agree with, but I do think they're honest. And I do think they're headed in the right direction, even if they don't always agree. Any Anything else to add to that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would, uh, you know, just say amen on a lot of those those resources and just point back one time to something that Justin, you said a, a few times in your conversation uh, is this idea of the incentive structure, right? Because again, this is not an indictment of every person and everything uh, that is said on cable news, but we have to be aware of the fact that there is a whole structure set up uh, in, in these corporations, which that's what they are is corporations and because they're corporations, their bottom line is their bottom line. Uh, and the incentive structure then is to 
is to bring this concentrated group of folks who are hyper radical about this one point of view and just keep those folks glued to the TV with fear, rage, you know, all this stuff to just make you think that the world's about to fall apart tomorrow. And it is because of somebody who's ideologically different than you. Right. And that's the business model. Uh, and so this is this is not to disparage any individual, uh, but that incentive structure uh, is 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 tough. And so a lot of these folks that Justin just listed off uh, are really finding uh, approaches to to structural um, engagement that can perhaps for uh, at least for this period of time, leave them a bit more free. Uh, to do things differently, uh, whether that's the local news uh, or some of these independent outlets that uh, that Justin just talked about, is is really important uh, that we understand why people are doing this the way that they're doing it, um, and and that we're not coming at everybody on social on on cable news, just trying to give you resources and help you practice your discernment. That's right. Just trying to put you in the best situation to engage faithfully. So get off of uh, cable news for a while and check out some of these other independent sources and different writers and things like that that can help you get to a better place and know what's going on around you. We will be back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County. A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It is Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, you may have heard that in uh, 2015, uh, the life expectancy in the United States went into a period of sustained decline. This hadn't happened in the past hundred years. And Chris, the last time that it happened was because of war deaths. You see, with technological progress, we expect life expectancy to go up. But that hasn't necessarily been the case. We've spoken about deaths of despair on this podcast in the past. The term uh, describes deaths by drug overdose and suicide. And Chris Arnaid uh, does a really detailed job of describing the phenomenon in his book entitled Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. The death, the death rate from dying uh, from drug overdoses more than tripled from 1999 to 2017. And deaths from opioid overdose doses increased sixfold. Let me say that again. Deaths from opioid overdoses increased almost sixfold. Dr. Keith Humphrey, a psychiatrist at Stanford, said that more people died from overdoses involving opioids in 2017 
then died from HIV or AIDS-related illnesses at the peak of the AIDS epidemic. That's serious. In an article written by uh, Sarah DeWeet, DeWeert, I think is is the name. I apologize, uh, Sarah. Uh, She says that that Purdue Pharma uh, and other companies promoted their opioid products heavily. She says part of the problem was they lobbied lawmakers and sponsored continuing medical education courses. During all these activities, they emphasized the safety, efficacy, and low potential for addiction of prescription opioids. All lies. Then she goes on to say that the fact is that opioids aren't even particularly effective at treating chronic treating chronic pain. With long term use, people can develop a tolerance to the drugs and even become more sensitive to pain. So they're pushing this drug. They're saying that it's not addictive and it's not even the best way to cure some of the problems that people were having. According to an article by Maya Solovitz in the uh, Scientific American, the opioid crisis is described in three waves. So when a lot of journalists and other people talk about the uh, the opioid crisis, they talk about these three waves. The first one is drug companies led by Purdue Pharma, uh, the maker of the notorious Oxycontin, convinced gullible doctors to prescribe unneeded opioids. This led to hundreds of thousands of new addictions in the 90s and 2000s. Observational research suggested that opioid prescribing was linked with increased disability and decreased and decreased productivity and overdose deaths began to rise. The second wave in this narrative begins around 2011 when states start to crack down on pain clinics. Uh, They were really, you know, these pain clinics were really what they started to call pill mills, where they're just giving folks all these pills as as long as they have the money for them. And you saw a bunch of uh, uh, folks go to jail for these pill mills that were really getting people addicted and putting people in a bad situation. Well, prescriptions. So when they start cracking down on these pill mills, the prescriptions become scarce. Prices rise and people who were addicted began to turn to heroin which was cheaper and now had a big enough pool of customers to attract cartels to places that they'd never served before. And again, overdose deaths increase. The third part of this explanation for it uh, uh, is that in this third wave, dealers start cutting heroin with fentanyl and other synthetic opioids, which were even more dangerous for these people. So you have uh, 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 Purdue Pharma pushing these. And, and here's what gets me to. They're pushing these pills out there. They have these pill mills. They knew or should have known that these pill mills were going and that people were getting opioids that shouldn't have had them. And they and the, and the way they went about it, they had doctors giving people uh, 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 these pills when they didn't even need it or that wasn't even the best thing for them. We'll get a little bit deeper into that later, but that is crazy. But here's what I want to tell you. Nearly a hundred thousand people are thought to have died from overdose in 2020. That is the deadliest toll from overdose in American history. A hundred thousand people last year. Companies like Purdue Pharma did a terrible thing. 
People were unwittingly drawn into drug addiction by people they trusted. The doctors, the experts, too many of whom had their eye on the money bag and not on human dignity. And so right now you have uh, uh, families and states are trying to hold Purdue Pharma accountable for what they did. They have the so as they were being held accountable and as they were getting sued, they declared bankruptcy which usually protects the owners from personal liability. Uh, so, so you can do all this stuff that they did, uh, stay out of jail, and then not be financially responsible after you made all this money and gave all your executives all this money. But the claimants, what they're now trying to do is what they call pierce the corporate veil. So not, not allow these folks to be protected by the corporation. But again, uh, so we have these three waves that uh, Maya... Uh, Zolovitz talked about in her article, but she goes on to say that that three ways misses one of the culprits. She said the three way within the culprits named in the, in that, in those three ways, she says, you got to name the policymakers in that second wave, because as they cut the supply of pills, they did not significantly manage the demand for opioids. So they say, so they, so they, did something with the supply, but didn't do hardly anything when it comes to the, to the demand. This almost always results in the rise of a more harmful drug because of hiding because hiding small quantities is always easier than concealing large quantities of less potent drugs. Right. So if I'm doing if I need to go get something illegal, I'm probably going to get something more potent because it's easier to conceal than if I were to get a, a large qu- a quantity of something that was less potent. All right. This is called the iron law of prohibition. And it's the reason why uh, more potentially deadly drug or uh, deadly substances flooded the streets. When people with addiction lost a- a- access to Oxycontin, they created a massive demand for unregulated street opioids that were more dangerous. Now, here's the thing. The iron law of prohibition was coined in 1986, which means that experts and policymakers should have accounted for it and pursued more significant ways to manage demand. But they didn't. They could have made medications like uh, suboxone and methadone more available. They could have. Uh, cut overdose deaths by around 50 percent. That's what those medications do. But instead of making those more available, they just dealt with the uh, the supply side of the conversation. Now, when we look at some when we look at all that's going on, obviously, this has life or death implications for a lot of people. This has family implications. This has policing implications. This has uh, health care implications and so on. But our policy approach was woefully insufficient. Again, while we're arguing about culture war stuff, while we're showing out and doing all this other stuff, we made some policy decisions, our representatives made some policy decisions that people are still suffering from today. And we let money in it all. If you look at how this happened, it started with the money bag. It started with greed that got out of control. And many families around the country are still suffering from this today. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think we've 
talked a little bit about this kind of thing uh, before, but some people are not going to agree with me, but I, I just completely think that this punitive supply side war on drugs is a fundamentally bad idea. It's never worked. It always exacerbates the problem. It exacerbated the alcoholism crisis in the 1920s. It exacerbated the crack epidemic in the 1980s and 1990s. It is exacerbating right now this opioid uh, epidemic, and it does not work. Uh, they have that that you know rule uh, that you just talked about because folks know that it doesn't work. Um, and so for policymakers to sit by and one more time try to take this uh, a very punitive uh, supply side approach, which is a the, the basic program of war on drugs. We're going to uh, punish people. We're going to shut people down. We're going to crack down. We're going to send in the, you know, the DEA, all of that stuff. If you if you do not do the hard work of trying to alleviate the demand. Uh, and yes, there are things that you got to do on the supply side for sure. But when you so drastically overdo it on this on the supply side, on the punitive side, on the war and drug side, and you don't do anything on the supply side, it always exacerbates the problem. Uh, it should be known. It should have been known. Frankly, I think that it is known. Um, and that a lot of times the policymakers are just taking the, the easiest approach, uh, the most sort of efficient approach, the approach that makes it you know, easiest to just say, hey, we try to do something about it is really uh, creating a very hard situation in communities all over the country. Uh, and when I look at this, the saddest part to me is that it's just another, another one of these issues around which we should be forming like broad coalitions that allow us to force change on issues that are literally killing people in everybody's community. Uh, but we have allowed the kind of culture war crap uh, to to keep us divided. Like I've, I've literally heard people, Justin, uh, casually uh, even celebrate like the idea that the opioid crisis is getting white people the way the crack epidemic got black people that's dumb. Uh, and it's particularly not Christian. Uh, this is one of those things that black people and white people and Latino people and urban people and rural people and Democrats and Republicans should all be getting together around to make sure that policymakers actually do something uh, on the demand side of this issue, uh, you know, of, of, of drugs in in general, um, and we just haven't been able to do that because of culture war stuff. And I think it ties back to the conversation we're just having about media, uh, because all that stuff is designed to keep us hating each other, so that policymakers and large corporations and all these folks who are making a killing on killing people, like literally killing people in our communities and just get away with it because we can't come together to stop them. Uh, and that's crazy. And I, I really pray that at some point soon here, we begin to see those kinds of coalitions 
being birthed out of the church, which I still think uh, is is the greatest hope. I don't I don't sit here and say that it's easy for that to happen, but I still think it's the greatest hope for, for uh, something like that to be born uh, inside of the church. And I, I would love to see that that happen because this is just another one of those issues that is so obvious, but people get away with it because there's no broad-based coalition to put an end to it. Chris, you brought up a very interesting point, which is the racial component to this conversation. During the crack epidemic, during a lot of things that were happening in the black community, a lot of folks responded by saying, well, just say no. They got into this themselves. They made a choice. Right. And, and left it at that. Um, obviously, to me, that that is not compassionate. That is not faithful to how that's not how I saw Jesus reacting to people. Yeah. What's been painful to me uh, to hear that coming from the white community a lot of times is in response to have some folks in our community, like you said, basically say, I don't care because they didn't care when it had when crack epidemic was going on. That is in no way a Christian response to anything. Um, and it just shows you how it's a cycle of hatred, <laughs> how a cycle of hatred can can continue. For those people who didn't care about the crack epidemic, which which is true, a lot of people were like, hey, whatever, just throw them in jail, whatever. That's terrible. But the response to respond in kind is, is, is terrible as well. And let's face the facts. Most of the folks dying and most of the folks who are uh, life expectancy are going down because of this. Most of the folks dying of these deaths of despair are white males. Can Christians have conversations about privilege, conversations about different advantages, conversations about the history of this country and still have compassion for people who are suffering? Because it's very clear that none of those things keep somebody from committing suicide when they're in a terrible position. None of those things keep somebody from drug overdoses when they've been given pills that they might not have even needed. But the system, the system that was set up for the big farm and everything else, put them in that position. Chris, this is injustice. And we don't have to compare which injustice was worse. We know that people are suffering and families are suffering. And this was why I don't get too deep into uh, any of those conversations, because you still have any time you can't sympathize or empathize with the pain of someone else because you think their life is so perfect just based off their identity. You've become the worst of them. And you should be able to understand how people can be cold towards you. If you can be that cold towards somebody else. You can identify why somebody of another race would be that cold towards you, because the truth is their life isn't perfect and they are going through certain things. And this this discussion, man, is something we really have to dig into. And the true answer is a Christian gospel centered answer to this. Uh, We have to care about people and what they're going through. What Purdue Pharma did was unjust, unrighteous. And should be punished worse than it's being punished right now. Because what I can tell you, Chris, is that if my little cousin Jojo goes around the block and is is selling drugs to to a whole bunch of people and they start dying off, he's doing some serious time. But just because you get an FDA sign off 
Uh, you can do you can put millions of dollars into fooling Americans and to getting doctors to go along with you and to getting uh, experts to write uh, 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 into in, in journals about how great uh, your product is and get away with killing all these people and putting all these people into uh, uh, addiction. This is what injustice looks like. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it, it it has to be a a gospel centered approach to this because you can't let folks off the hook. I personally don't think that you you let JoJo off the hook, but you also can't let Purdue Pharma off the hook. But I love something that you said, Justin, about the cycle, because this idea of we're going to turn a blind a blind eye to this because it's impacting white males today. It's extremely not compassionate, profoundly unchristian. It's also not smart from a long-term political view because these things are cyclical. And if you don't think that it's coming back to our communities, you're fooling yourself. We should be taking an opportunity if such an opportunity exists. And I truly believe in my heart that especially in the church that the opportunity does exist. We should be taking the opportunity to form coalitions that can fundamentally change the thinking, the policymaking, and the advocacy around how you deal with addiction issues, period. We should be doing that because it's not just going to protect the white men who are in a crisis today. It's going to protect all people who will ever be in an addiction crisis at any time that we will have in this country. Right. So uh, it's it, it is the Christian thing to do. It is the compassionate thing to do. And just as it so often turns out, Justin, what c- compassionate Christian thinking. It's also a smart thing to do. Um, And so I just really hope that we engage on this uh, in in serious ways. I think it's a a real opportunity. This issue particularly uh, is a real opportunity to form some coalition and build some relationship that needs to be formed for a lot of reasons. uh, But here's a great opportunity to do it. Yeah. And and here's the thing. You got to realize that some of these folks have racial hangups. Some of these folks voted for Trump and wear MAGA hats or or rock the Confederate flag around. And guess what? As a Christian, you still should have compassion for them in the midst of this conversation. People are hurting. And if your ideology or your system of belief somehow erases their pain because you want to just highlight your own pain. It's not Christian, man. We need each other until we realize that we're going to keep going in this cycle. Nobody escapes it. We'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the Ant Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. All right, Chris. Um, this is our, our our last little segment for this podcast. And I want to talk about what happened last week at the Faith and Freedom Coalition Conference. And what happened there was, Chris, um, former Vice President Mike Pence was booed and called a traitor. Apparently, he was called these things and, and treated this way for refusing to block Congress's certification of Joe Biden's presidential win. Now, the interesting thing is that part of the mission of the Faith and Freedom Coalition is to speak out in the public arena and in the media on behalf of Christian values. And yet, they booed Mike Pence for acknowledging the truth and some and having some integrity in doing his job. Now, anybody who's been listening to this podcast for any, you know, for a decent amount of time, I guess I should say, knows that I'm not a huge Mike Pence fan. I, I feel like there are a lot of times he should have stood. He should have stood up way before that. <laughs> and there's a lot of times that he went along with the president uh, in ways that I thought, you know, uh, uh, someone, a man of integrity should not have. But the idea that he would go to a Christian event. And he would get booed for that reason makes no sense to me. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Chris. I'm not big on booing people. I'm not going to say it's a, a sin necessarily to boo people. I'm not big on booing people. I think there are other ways that to handle, you know, uh, a conversation. Or if I need to say something to you, I can say it in a different way that I think may be more uh, respectful. But that's just not my thing. You know, if you do it, OK, I don't boo in sports. I don't boo in, in, in any of that stuff. But but to think that Christians are booing based on Trump's big lie, based on the loss of, you know, this power that they wanted, based on thinking that they're they're losing something that we supposedly had in the past. It's just it's just frustrating. Uh, It just shows you again where the Christian public witness has gone and where our faith is. You know, what do you really think that Mike Pence took away from you that you need to you need to treat that man like that for that reason? I don't know, Chris. Maybe you can shed some light on this for me. Yeah, I mean, I I won't sit here. Uh, I wish that you took a different view on booing um, because I I won't sit here and, and lecture on booing. I will simply say as an organizer uh, and a tactician. Uh, that booing is not a great form of confrontation. Uh, and I'm, I'm one who believes in confrontation. Booing's not a confrontation. It's an emotional outburst uh, that, that doesn't yield much, but I'll leave that there. Um, I, I, 
I think that this relates to the conversation that we were just having. Um, Cause I, I think that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with booing. I don't think it's a great strategy for confrontation, uh, but I don't, I think that even when you think about a confrontation, um, you have to think about who are you confronting or who are you booing? When are you booing or confronting them? And what are you booing and confronting them about? Uh, and this, I, I would say a few things. It's generally bad form, in my opinion, to boo a former president of the United States if you're a Christian. I think we should have a higher standard for honor than that. Um, that again, that doesn't mean that you don't you can't confront people uh, in power and political office. Uh, there are tons of examples in the scripture. We see John the Baptist confronting Herod. We see a lot of confrontation uh, of people in power uh, in scripture, but it shouldn't be done casually, uh, which again, I think booing is, but it shouldn't be done casually. Uh, it should be looking like John the Baptist at some kind of gross transgression of the order of God that even brings about that sort of public confrontation because uh, we should have a high standard uh, for honor. And then, as we talked about last week, Justin, the question is, is this about the faith or is this about a political orthodoxy that has become more dear to you than has your faith? Reality is that you can be a Christian and be a Trump supporter. But you don't have to be a Christian in order to, I mean, you don't have to support Trump in order to be a good Christian. And while I could give Christians a long list of things about which they could legitimately confront former Vice President Mike Pence, if you want that list, hit me up. I can supply you with a good list of things over which confrontation I think is is uh, quite necessary. But this seems to be all about a violation of Trumpist orthodoxy, not some transgression of biblical principles. And what that means is like we talked about last week, you've allowed your political orthodoxy to become more precious to you than your faith and biblical orthodoxy, you have more than conflated the two. You've lifted the one above the other, which is horrible. I mean, I won't go into all of that. If you want more thought on that, listen to last week's podcast. But it wreaks havoc on the church. It wreaks havoc uh, on our democracy. And it's just bad form. Yeah, man, I, I remember in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention, um, a bunch of folks in the convention booed Dr. Cynthia Hale while she was giving a prayer. And it was one of the ugliest and most disgraceful moments that I had ever seen because they were they were more worried about what was going on politically than actually the prayer. It was a beautiful prayer. Anybody knows um, Dr. Cynthia Hale can preach. She can pray, but she sound her, her her voice is like melodic. It was it was awesome. But the way they did that was just disgraceful. And, and to think that Christians would boo somebody for doing the right thing based on a lie. Based on something that Trump's own attorney said, nobody would actually believe this. So don't hold me accountable. Well, no, people do believe it. And many of them are Christians. 
And many of them will go to a Christian event and put this Christendom and, and who they think is the protector of Christendom ahead of actually acting like a Christian and a public witness that can actually speak to people outside of the person sitting next to you. We've got to get some control of ourselves. We've got to have some discipline. We've got to have some perspective about what's going on. This is why you lose credibility. This is why even the good things that you may represent, nobody's listening outside of your group. Take some time to try to do it right, guys. Come on, Christians, we got to do better. As always, Ann Camp, uh, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp, I'll let you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.